0: And And we are the extra extra sisters. sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another haunted happy hour. And this one, we're going to be talking about the most haunted houses in the United States. Obviously, not all of them, but some of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I picked a couple different states to do based on some of the houses that I thought were interesting. And honestly, some of mine, like, the haunts aren't like that violent or scary but like the history is interesting and by most haunted I mean like have the most paranormal activity so that doesn't mean that like people are getting thrown out of windows by ghosts you know
1: right exactly like uh, but people might see more things or movement. exactly
0: like more realistically haunted you know
1: right not like paranormal activity it's not
0: like the conjuring where people <laughs> are getting possessed you know and like trying to kill their kids you know what I mean right so a lot in a lot of these, like a lot of mine, the longest parts of them are actually the historical part of them, which I also thought was really interesting because most of these super haunted houses were built like, I don't know, the dawn of the United States or when it was colonized. Not like, you know, like, uh, same.
1: like I, I went to a lot of stuff on. And if anybody's really interested, definitely check this website out. It's where I got a lot of my information. It's literally just hauntedhouses.com. And you can literally search for a haunted house in the search bar and read about their whole history and the sightings that have, that have happened. Some of them had pictures on there. It was really good. Really detailed.
0: Well, that's cool. I wish I had known about that. (laughs) I just found basically a list that said the most haunted house in every state. And I picked like a couple that I found were interesting and actually all of mine ended up being in the South. Oh (laughs) yeah. And I think it's just because like, I'm from the South, and Mm -hmm. honestly, well, I guess Idaho doesn't count. I I I do have
1: one. (laughs) One that's far away. But it makes sense, too, because the South and the Northeast, like, that's what was colonized first. That's where we landed first. So it's the older stuff. So older stuff is almost always going to have more ghosts, more deaths, and especially the South, sadly, we have a lot of negative deaths down there.
0: Mm, Yep 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 so this first one i have is from mississippi i'm not the biggest fan no offense (laughs) i'm not the biggest fan of mississippi it's a pretty ass backwards state bass ass Ass backwards (laughs) as far as the things that i believe in but there's no nothing's a lost cause but it does have a lot of history obviously Mm mm-hmm And there is this home in Mississippi in Vicksburg, and it is the McRaven home, and it is the most haunted house in Mississippi, allegedly. So I have a couple different things I'm going to read from. One is a blog of somebody who visited the house, and then the other one is just kind of an informational site about the McRaven house. So let's get into it. Located in Vicksburg, Mississippi, the home has plenty of history and tales to impart during their historic or haunted tours, which I would do both. Like, I would do the haunted or the historical one first and then do the haunted tour. yes. I I want the whole story, you know? (laughs) So whether you enjoy more about the early United States history or you want to hear more about the paranormal, you'll get a good tour either way. Vicksburg is full of Civil War history, and the house itself was first built prior to Mississippi receiving statehood. One of the most fascinating things about this house is its architecture. The house received two remodels before opening to the public in 1961, which is, I get, I know that why things happen, but like I hate going into a place knowing that they remodeled some of it to show it to the public. And I'm like, no.
1: Agreed. Now, some of the
0: remodels were not done to show to the public, they were done by people that lived there, but Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah each of the remodels added new sections to the house leaving the old ones untouched however the final amendment a greek revival facade was later changed by the same owner to add italianite faced which featured vicksburg pillars a popular choice in the town the mcraven house was built in 1797 when john adams had yet to take over as the second president of the u.s it began as a two brick home with a bedroom over a kitchen the builder was a highway robber named Andrew Glass and he became the first ghost to haunt the McRaven house. Interestingly enough, the second owner was a sheriff by the name of Stephen Howard and he had he added a bedroom, a stairway because the previous version had a removable ladder to avoid ambush, <laughs> a two-story covered porch and an enclosed patio in 1836. The expansion was done in the empire period and artifacts from each period remain in the appropriate sections of the house. The most active spirit in the house is Howard's wife, Mary Elizabeth, and she still has her personal items in the home. And the final change came in 1849. and It included a parlor, a men's changing area, a master bedroom and a flying wing staircase. There are traditionally two kinds of tours, like I was saying. One is history, and the other focuses on the haunting. And there are at least three known apparitions in the house, including Mary Elizabeth, Andrew Glass, and the most recent builder, John Bob, who met his end at the hands of Union troops one year after the Vicksburg siege of McRaven. Adding to the legend of McGraven being haunted, at least five occupants have died in the house, and former owner John Bob was murdered just outside its premises. So, like I was just saying. It's also very likely that a few Confederate soldiers died on the property during this time, as it was used as a field hospital. Reports of ghostly activity are said to be spread throughout the house, but the center of activity seems to be in the middle bedroom upstairs, the room where Mary Elizabeth Howard, aged 15, died during childbirth. Jesus. Her ghost is believed to be responsible for the bedside lamp in this room, which has been reported to turn off and on, seemingly at will. In the time before Leyland French bought the house and started living there in 1984, the previous owners who didn't reside in the home were frequently awakened by calls in the middle of the night telling them the lights at McRaven had come on. Mary Elizabeth's ghostly apparition had appeared on the house's flying wing staircase and in the dining room while handling Mary Elizabeth's wedding shawl. Some people say it emits heat, while others claim it also jumped out of their hands.
1: Jesus.
0: Yeah. McRaven owner Leyland French once saw the ghost of former owner William Murray on the staircase and after realizing who it was and the fact that he is dead, a frightened French ran upstairs to the Bob bedroom and locked the door. He later called a local priest and had the house blessed. The spirits of Ella and Annie Murray are also said to roam the grounds of McRaven. And Ghost Adventures has also been there, but I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure this is true for most of the houses on my list since they're considered the most haunted houses in the States. But Ghost Adventures goes everywhere. That show's been around for so long that they've probably been
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: To all these places. So
1: that was a cool one. Yeah. I love (laughs) cooler. I love that it was a robber and then a sheriff and that there was a removable ladder, which just makes sense for Robert that was great I was like you're not
0: getting up here exactly
1: exactly he knows okay the first one that I'm going to start off with is also in the south we're moving over to Louisiana for this one and this is Myrtle's Plantation the story of Myrtle's Plantation began as a consequence of the failure of the 1794 whiskey rebellion the leader of the rebellious short-lived movement was General David Bradford who was a wealthy judge and whiskey trade businessman from Washington County, Pennsylvania. Of course, when the Federal Army came looking for him, he skedaddled via a boat boat ride down the bayou, Sara, Louisiana, that was still under the control of Spain at the time. Luckily for the good General Bradford, he had applied for Spanish land grant in 1794 and had received this large parcel of 650 acres, to be exact, through a Spanish official. It was a perfect place to build a new plantation house in the sleepy little town of St. Francisville, avoiding jail time and family shame. He was well liked by the people here who knew him from his whiskey trade business in New Orleans area and had proven to be an honest trader. He named his beautiful plantation house Richland. Fortunately for him, he was pardoned by President Jefferson but continued to live out his days here with his wife and daughter until he died in 1808. In 1826, his widow sold Richland to the family's son-in-law, Clark Woodruff, who had married their daughter. He also was a lawyer who rose to prominence. Unfortunately, he liked to have a slave chick on the side. His wife and very young daughter and son moved into this lovely Richland plantation house. Not too long after the family moved in, the story that was told was that his wife caught yellow fever and died. The other story concerning the death of his two children isn't told, as it is tragic and maddening at the same time. Mrs. Woodruff was probably weakened by their passing and didn't have the strength to fight off the yellow fever. Apparently, a slave house servant by the name of Chloe, who was his slave chick on the side until he ended it, had her ear cut off for misbehavior. To get back at Clark Woodruff for dumping her and maiming her, Chloe made a birthday cake for Clark's eldest daughter, Cornelia. She added some poisonous oleander berries. They ate the cake and both the Woodruff children, Cornelia and James, died. Chloe had a painful ending. Mrs. Woodruff died of yellow fever soon after the children died, weakened by grief. In 1834, Clark Woodruff stole the estate to Ruffin G. Sterling, who saw the possibilities in this old house. The Sterling clan was a wealthy family of the first rank in Louisiana society. They owned several other plantations and also had a townhouse in Natchez when they wanted to escape country life. Ruffin began and completed an ambitious plan with many renovations, To bring the home into the mid-19th century with great success he renamed the plantation calling it the myrtles in 1854 ruffin sterling died and his son stephen sterling inherited the property stephen's daughter sarah and son-in-law william winter and their children lived in the plantation house from 1860 to 1871 when their little girl katie caught yellow fever mr winter brought a servant from a neighbor by the name of cleo who was a voodoo priestess desperately looking for a cure She came and earnestly said her healing words, but little Kate died the next day anyway. Her father, Winter, not known for controlling his temper, blamed the voodoo ceremony performed and hung Cleo from a tree in the front yard. William was murdered suddenly by an unknown assailant, a person seeking revenge, perhaps from an incident resulting from Mr. Winter's rash temper. The Sterling family carried on and managed to hang on to the property, even through reconstruction taxes. The property finally left the family entirely in 1894. From 1894 through the early 1970s, a variety of owners enjoyed living here. When it was put back on the real estate market in 1974, this historic home was a bit of a creaky fixer-upper opportunity. Stephen Saunders and his wife saw the beauty of this structure and bought it in 1975 with great restoration plans for this gem of a plantation house. They filled out the NRHP form and were able to register the Myrtles Plantation as a National Historic Property in September of 1978. Other owners followed doing their best to maintain this unique home. It never again became a fixer-upper opportunity. The latest owners that bought the Myrtle's Plantation had a vision of what the property could be and were willing to make a financial investment to compete with other southern plantation houses who had upscaled what they offered guests. They took advantage of the 10 acres that came along with the main structure, expanding their availability by building caretakers' quarters, five cottages, the cocoa house, and the garden rooms, which are the newest guest rooms built. Apparently, there was a fire that badly damaged the restaurant and another building there, so they made lemonade out of lemons. They also took this opportunity to remodel the restaurant. Guests have raved about the meals provided there. Reading the reviews, guests have also enjoyed their experiences and all that is offered at the Myrtles Plantation. The spirits who reside here also appreciate all the work that was done and sometimes can't resist having a little fun with the guests or show their hospitality. I also have a list of the spirits that show up there. So, we have the spirit of Chloe. Chloe was the French mulatto governess to the Woodrow children who got into big trouble trying to get revenge and had a bad end. Chloe herself was hung from a high tree by the outraged slaves of the plantation. Though always very polite, this spirit of Chloe is an unhappy soul for a variety of reasons and wanders around the house, courtyards, and between buildings. Her apparition has been seen by many people as she isn't shy about appearing. She was always in an intense mood, intent on reaching her goal. Her apparition was caught by an insurance photographer that is on a postcard for sale at the Myrtles Plantation gift shop. Experiences have happened with Chloe. Her activities suggest that Chloe is looking for someone. She is described as being a green-turbaned black woman who wanders around the mansion during the night and has been known to wake visitors by lifting the mosquito netting around the bed and looking intently at the bed's occupant and then goes away disappointed. A former owner of the Myrtles had to face an encounter with Chloe, who awakened her, and at first was scared, as Chloe looked intently at her, then seemed disappointed as if she was looking for someone else. Chloe was decked out in a flowing gown and turban. However, after living in the mansion for a while, this former owner enjoyed having Chloe and the other ghosts around, and thought they were really quite friendly and civil with traditional southern manners. As long as they have manners. You know, (laughs) we
0: all have standards. You
1: southern people. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) The two spirit girls. They are thought to be Cornelia Woodruff and Katie Winter. Two little blonde girl spirits have been peeking in the windows. Both of these spirit children visited a startled writer by standing at the foot of his bed. These two little blonde girls are seen playing on the veranda bed mischief possibly by james woodruff another unknown unseen little rascal that could be the spirit of james woodruff who apparently likes to bounce on the beds that were just freshly made fortunately another apparition of a young woman perhaps chloe dressed as maid follows this mischief maker around and quickly smooths the wrinkles caused by all the jumping no harm done
0: no harm done
1: yeah. i mean she's just having fun exactly just priestess <laughs> exactly Priestess Cleo at work. Inside a bedroom, a spirit of Priestess Cleo tries in vain to save little Katie with chance and with something she holds in her hand, perhaps trying to stop her own hanging or have some peace about this feud Uh. failure. (laughs) She also tries to forget the wrong done to her by Mr. Winter, which must make her restless. She has appointed herself to be the helper in the Myrtles Plantation, perhaps to make up for her failure to cure. She defended the property against the Ghost Adventure Trio, giving them some intense experiences.
0: See them ghost adventures, motherfuckers (laughs) again. Zach Bagans going places. He's not. He's such a douche. (laughs) I
1: know, right?
0: That being said, I wouldn't mind going to his haunted museum in Vegas.
1: Yeah, yeah. It sucks because you don't want to support that shit, but also you're interested. I get it.
0: But also, he has a sick collection.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: He's like a modern day Warren Museum, to be honest. Not that the Warrens weren't modern, but you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I get you. I get you. Like
0: more current.
1: <laughs> more current.
0: Except he puts it in Vegas and he charges people a lot of money.
1: That's capitalism right there for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's been like my catch word lately. It's like uh you That's know That's capitalism. <laughs> SpongeBob beam where he does it as a rainbow. That's what I've been doing lately. Capitalism.
0: <laughs> yeah, except you. <ew. laughs> <laughs> so my next one's like kinda wholesome.
1: Yay!
0: I know. So this is the Littlefield House in Austin, Texas. Because I had to do Texas, like
1: of course. I didn't do Colorado, Massachusetts. So you're good. I did. We you did do Colorado, Colorado and Massachusetts, yeah.
0: Is it Molly's house in Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious if it was that one because that's the one that came up for me too. Yeah. Okay. So the Littlefield House has a, a lot of ghost tales and rumors, and is a prime example of the Austin feedback loop. The Alamo, St. Edwards, Shoal Creek, and all those other sites are haunted, not by lowly spirits, but by famous spooks, spooks that were once legends in life and now seem to garner the same reputations in their afterlife. The reason why Austin seems to be embedded in a constant stream of hauntings and horror movie antics is also the reason why the state of Texas is a fountain of legends and tales because Texas, (laughs) (laughs) it's home to some of the most extravagant and larger than life personalities this nation has ever bred. That's right. (laughs) oh my god it's so funny because people are like get me the fuck out of texas but then like even when you leave texas you're like that's my country (laughs)
1: Um, that's my country yeah basically
0: the Littlefield house is a historic home founded on the campus at university of texas at austin the home was constructed in 1893 by renowned architect james warrenberger it was commissioned by the legendary civil war veteran cattle rancher and businessman george littlefield George and his wife, Alice, would later be recognized as instrumental in the advancement of UT. They were philanthropists and major benefactors to the academia. The Littlefield house cost around 50 k which was expensive back then, and was designed using Himalayan cedar imported straight from that region in the artistical Victorian style. The story of Littlefield and why many believe it is haunted dates back to the first years when the house was occupied by George and Alice. The Story of Alice Alice Payne Tiller was born in Virginia on April 10, 1846 at the age of 11. She was a prodigy, an avid painter, a musician, and a linguist. She was enrolled in Gonzales College. By then, she had acquired a rather colorful reputation as an artist, we'll say. Alice met George Littlefield during their studies at Gonzales College. By September 1861, just before George left to fight on the Confederacy's <laughs> side during the Civil War, the couple were engaged. After George returned and was subsequently discharged by the army on a couple of injuries he suffered on the field, the couple finally wed. By all accounts, it was a happy marriage. Everything was running smoothly for almost 50 years. They had two children, both of whom died in infancy. Nowadays, that would have been a blow, but back in those days, the incidence of child mortality were rather high, about 30%. People were accustomed to it, and it didn't dictate a person's level of bliss. Alice and George, convinced that they could have any kids, dedicated their life to their extended family, their nieces and nephews. They ended up paying for their college, all 29. God damn. And later on, they gave each one a job and a nice home. Where, where the fuck is mine? <laughs> <laughs> In 1883, Alice and George moved to Austin, and 10 years later, they re- re- relocated the Littlefield house. Then, when Alice hit the age of 65, They hit a speed bump and things started to deteriorate. In 1912, for no apparent reason, Alice Littlefield developed the unexplained nervous condition. Overnight, Alice began to have visions and delusions of doom. She was paranoid and convinced that her whole family would be murdered and that she would be kidnapped. These delusions and bouts of panic made her prone to fits of hysteria. George, at his wit's end, had to restrain Alice and concurrently took her to the sanitarium for aid. The doctors advised him to intern Alice and allow them to take care of her long term. I told him I would not think of leaving her with strangers, but I would carry her home so I could look after her and care for her in comfort, he said. At least he didn't dump her at the fucking asylum, bro. Yeah. For the rest of George's life until he died of pneumonia in 1920, Alice was confined to the Littlefield house and he did take care of her. And in addition to three professional nurses he hired, the tragedy of Alice and George stems from the fact that she did improve. She did manage to beat her nervous condition. When George died, she no longer had to fear that someone would murder him. This, in turn, liberated her from her paranoia.
1: Oh my God, that's so sad. Yeah.
0: What ended up jailing her was her love for her husband. Ironically, she regained her sanity when that person was no longer around, when his physical well being was no longer a concern. Alice regained normal mental health and resumed an active social life. On January 9th, 1935, at the age of 88, Alice died and was buried beside her husband at Oakwood Cemetery. This is going to piss you off, but mm. her gravestone reads Beloved Wife of George Littlefield. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's all she was. Huh? Yeah,
0: it'd be like that sometimes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the Haunting of Littlefield. The interesting thing about the ghost that haunts this age-old construction is the fact that it is a rather busy specter. One peculiar wraith has that of an unquenchable appetite for all things christened under her name. Alice Littlefield is said to haunt not only her home, but also the residence hall and dormitory named after her at UT. That's awesome. Yeah, she's like, (laughs) She's just checking on people. You say my name? I'm going over there. (laughs) Residents in that place constantly claim to hear unexpected noise and rattlings. They complain of incessant singing and moaning from the wall. The dorm that holds her name is said to be protected by a guardian angel and more than one student can attest to Alice's ghost somehow protecting them. There are tales of students narrowly avoiding an accident or bypassing bodily harm on account of guiding hand, helping them out. It has become a tradition of the students in this part of UT to celebrate an annual seance in Alice's honor. I, I still would not be. Yeah. You got to be very careful with that. Right. Meanwhile, in the Littlefield Mansion, students and tourists constantly claim to feel Alice's ghostly presence. They are assailed by cold spots and odd sensations in the pit of their stomach. Folks claim to see her face peering through different windows in the manor. Sometimes she's looking in while others claim she's looking out. There are also reports of screams of fright or footsteps running up and down staircases. The most iconic imagery to Alice's ghostly walkabouts has to do with a portrait of hers hanging in the Littlefield house. The image infuses visitors with an eerie sensation, as if they're being judged or observed by her oil-painted eyes.
1: Damn. Judged. I know what you just did in there.
0: She's like, What are you doing in my fucking house? I'm like, <laughs> I see you walking around.
1: <laughs> but she protects the
0: students.
1: I love that. She's like, I, I paid so for y'all to be exactly. here. Exactly.
0: No, they that. paid, but you know. I started it.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Yeah. So that one was actually kind of kinda of cool.
1: I like that one.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: This one's not bad either, but it's not as sweet. The Molly Brown House. Margaret Tobin Brown was The Unthinkable Sorry. <laughs> yes. Margaret Tobin Brown was born into a hardworking, blue-collar family with six children. She learned many values about the importance of hard work and education. After moving to Leadville, Colorado, dah, 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 she worked at a good store while living with her brother, while the dream of marrying a rich man so she could help her family. At a church picnic, she met James, J- James Joseph Brown, J.J. Brown, a poor man, but was the love of her life. So she changed her dream and married for love in 1886. They moved closer to the lead mine where J.J. worked and lived in a two-room log cabin. Molly hired tutors to continue her education by studying reading and literature and music. The Irish maid they hired also studied with Molly, a practice of which Molly continued of always including the servants in her own tutoring sessions, which is awesome. By 1889, Molly and J.J. had two children. were living back in Leadville in a nice house with nearly all the Tobin clan living nearby. These were the happiest years of Molly's life. J.J. was making good money, being in charge of the many mining operations of Ibex Mining Company because of his hard work and business sense. The purchase of Little Johnny Mine brought a huge change in their financial futures. A large vein of gold was discovered in this mine. The grade of gold was so pure and the vein so wide it was heralded as the world's richest gold strike. By October 29, 1893, the Little Johnny was shipping 135 tons of gold per day. The gold strike revitalized the mining industry in Leadville. The Brown family moved to Denver and bought this 1889 Victorian mansion, which was built by renowned architect William Lang, who was hired by Isaac Mary Lang to do so. Molly and JJ were giving people and shared their money with charities and did a lot of good works in both Leadville and Denver. This was just the beginning of her life of serving others less fortunate for she believed that money was a tool for helping others. By the end of her life, Margaret's life of humanitarian and philanthropic service and her never-ending spirit were well-recognized. Her marriage ended with J.J. in 1909, but they remained friends. It was hard for J.J. to be married to such a dynamo. She became active in social causes, like raising money for juvenile justice system, became involved in the Red Cross, went over to France during World War I, and helped the people there through an organization called the American Committee for Devastated France. When the marriage ended, Molly Brown spent less and less time in Denver and decided to rent out their house to various families for many years until the Great Depression, when she was forced to turn the house into a boarding facility. By the time she died in 1932, the house was in rundown condition. The owners that followed substantially altered the home to create 12 separate spaces for renters. In 1958, Art Lessring bought the house and ran a gentleman's boarding house for two years. He then leased it to the city of Denver, who made it a home for wayward girls. By 1970, urban renewal was in full swing, and this home had a date with the wrecking ball. Lessering formed a historic Denver Incorporated, which raised money to save Molly Brown's house. The house was meticulously restored to its former splendor and was opened as a museum. The entities of Molly Brown and her husband, James John. The entities of Molly Brown and her husband still putter around their home, going about their business, doing what they like to do while alive. The staff and guests to the museum have smelled pipe and cigar smoke, the telltale sign that J.J. has been enjoying his smokes again, although there is no smoking allowed for the living. Cold spots have been felt in Molly Brown's room, and her apparition has been seen by the living as she goes around corners. The female entity, the female entity dressed in a Victorian dress. This female apparition dressed in Victorian attire likes to sit at the dining room table and has allowed the living to take pictures of her. While feeling energetic, this, en- this entity likes to rearrange the chairs, which are around this same table. JJ and Molly had a daughter named Catherine Ellen who died young, probably a disease. The window blinds in Catherine Ellen's room raise and lower on their own. So they're pretty sure that's the female entity. The entity of Joanna. Molly's mother, Joanna, stayed in Catherine Ellen's old room. The image of the entity has been seen in the room's window. There's an entity of a male servant. The entity of the male servant is in a grumpy mood and has been seen in the mirror hanging near the stairs on the first floor. And those are the ghosts of the Molly Brown house.
0: I want to fucking go. Let's go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just remember when the Titanic came out and it was like a year long wait list to go to the Molly Brown house because everybody had to go see it.
0: Oh, I bet. I would just love to go just for the history, but mm-hmm. the haunted stuff is, that's neat too.
1: Agreed. There's not the Titanic, but there's actually a movie, I think it's just called Molly Brown or maybe the unsinkable Molly Brown, but there is a movie in the 90s, 80s, 90s that had her actual story of like them finding the gold and her husband put all of their money, their cash, she didn't think it was safe to put in a bank, like, yeah, no, depression time period, stuff like that. And he put it in their stove. Or, no, she. Sorry, she didn't think it was safe. So she was, like, hiding it in her beds and put it in the stove. And he came home drunk and lit it on fire. All their money.
0: Oh, my God. Thank God
1: they were selling so much gold. Like, they made it back. But, yeah. God. Why would
0: Uh you set anything on fire,
1: first of all? Just, I'm drunk and that sounds fun! (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. God. Well, I mean, he... She hid it in the like, honestly, it's her fault. She hid it in the stove. He came home just wanting to light a fire. Oh, okay. that shit up. yeah. I was
0: thinking, like, somewhere else. Yeah, okay, uh, that's fair. Yeah. And then she's like, You let our money on fire. And he's like, I lit the stove. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. I didn't
0: do shit. <laughs> All right. This next one is from Florida. Not that Florida's kind of the. Hmm. But I'm sure it's got some good haunts, you know. Death has been in and around the Riddle House in West Palm Beach, Florida, since it was built in the early nineteen hundreds.
1: All right, so we're talking about Harry Potter now. Got it.
0: Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> but you know how like I was trying to look for haunts at the Riddle House and it kept coming up with like I I
1: knew it. I yeah figured.
0: First used as a funeral parlor, so you know, you know.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: And later as a private residence, the home has seen its share of tragedy. But what makes this haunt even more perplexing? In the 1980s, the house was moved across town, and from many modern-day reports, the angry ghost who dwelled there went with it. In 1905, a Victorian Painted Lady House was constructed at 327 Acacia Street in downtown West Palm Beach. Originally called the Gatekeeper's Cottage, the building served as a home to the overseers of the Woodlawn Cemetery across the street. A century ago, it wasn't uncommon for families to bury their loved ones with the expensive jewelry they owned in life. Grave robbing was an ongoing problem, and those who lived in the Gatekeeper's Cottage were expected to keep an eye out for would-be criminals. The first ghostly legend attached to this seemingly normal house is that of a big man named Buck who once worked for the cemetery. The local legend states that Buck was killed in town after an argument spun out of control. Buck's ghost has been seen walking the grounds around the house on the porch of the cottage where cemetery workers would often take their meals. In the 1920s, Carl Riddle became the first city manager and superintendent of public works. The city of West Palm beach offered the former gatekeepers cottage as a residence for riddle in addition to his duties as city manager riddle also had to oversee the cemetery during his tenure at the house one of riddle's employees encountered financial difficulties he became despondent and withdrawn from his family seeing no other way out riddle's employee hung himself from the rafters in the attic after the tragedy the beam used to hold the rope was permanently removed from the top story of the house the suicide was a catalyst for darker hauntings that followed Carl Riddle's personal diary recounts how the family had trouble keeping help in the home. The staff reported hearing chains rattling on the stairs and murmuring voices. Many quit, never to return. Real quick. It's so interesting how haunting things and things that scare us evolve because, like, chains rattling is such, like, an old school thing to be scared of.
1: Uh-huh. Agreed. Yeah. Do, do you know what I
0: mean? Like, as yeah. soon as I read that, I was like, that's not something that we say, like, if nowadays. I, it's yeah. like, I heard chains rattling in my basement. But like back then,
1: yeah. Right. Now you're like, is someone tied up down there? It's yeah. Wrong. Like, what the, <laughs> what the fuck?
0: After Riddle and his family moved out, several businesses came and went before the building was finally used by Palm Beach Atlantic College as a go- as a girl's dormitory. By 1980, the building was abandoned, fell into disrepair, and was scheduled to be demolished by the city. But fate had other plans. The city donated the building Back to John Riddle, the nephew of Carl, and he donated the the building for preservation. The house at Acacia Street was dismantled and moved to Yesteryear Village to go on permanent display. During the reassembling of the Riddle house, the dark haunting inside reared its head again. When returning to work in the mornings, carpenters would find their tools thrown from the attic onto the grounds below. Third floor windows would also be found mysteriously broken. At one point, reconstruction had to stop for six months because the workers were so shaken up they would not return to go inside. During yeah. the yeah, during the private unveiling of the Riddle House in Yesterday Village, two unexpected guests. Sh- this one is so weird. I want to. I would like. I wish I could hear someone talk about this to like get the validity of this, but. During the private unveiling of the Riddle House in Yesteryear Village, two unexpected guests showed up to the reception, dressed in early 20th century clothing, and many commented on how dashing the pair looked. Those in attendance assumed the couple to be actors. When an old photo showing the original Riddle House was unveiled, attendees were shocked to see the couple in the photo. The guests could not be found. So it was them. Yeah. Very cool. The Riddle House is one of the most active haunts in Southern Florida. One visitor who had arranged for a private tour was struck in the head by a piece of wood in the staircase. The wood seemed to appear from nowhere. A maintenance worker was attacked while cleaning the building and refuses to enter the house again. Other witnesses have spotted a hanging torso in the attic window, but later learned that there was no mannequin up there. So, you know, security personnel have seen lights going on and off in the building and many avoid the house altogether. Places hold memories long after inhabitants have moved on, even when relocated entirely, and some entities are bound to the structures themselves. So, that is the Riddle House in Yesteryear Village in Palm Beach, Florida.
1: Cool. I liked that one. Slash I Will Never Go.
0: The hanging torso would be like, (laughs) no thank you, and just getting popped on the head with wood. Hell no.
1: Yeah, definitely. But an old funeral parlor, like you're going to see some shit there. Yeah. Okay, so my next one is going to be incredibly long, mostly because there's two parts to it. The first part, y'all are going to basically know, but I'm, I'm still going to go through it. So, the Lizzie Borden house. Ooh, yay. Yeah. I want to go stay there so bad. Okay.
0: Patreon.com slash the Exorcist <laughs>
1: podcast.
0: Support our stay at the Lizzie Borden house.
1: Yeah, come on. You guys know you want to hear another haunted hotels at the Lizzie Borden house.
0: Yeah, we have to have money to go to hotels.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Andrew Borden was a widower after his first wife, Sarah, died. He was left with two small daughters, Lizzie and Emma, when he married 36-year-old Abby, an event that I bet Abby regretted many times. It was not a happy home life. Andrew was a bit of an odd duck to start with, what we would call a control freak with a main attitude and several personal issues, someone who shouldn't have children. One of his issues is the fear of losing vast wealth. Though he became a banker, was extremely wealthy, he was also extremely tight with his money, insisting for insistence that no food be thrown out, thus not wasting it. Many times the family ate spoiled food. The family lived in a modest part of town, very frugally, on the tight leash. He saw no value in the arts and and prohibited them in his home and for his family. He ruled his household with a stern demeanor, not showing much love to anyone. Perhaps he tried in his own way. He had absolute control over everyone's behavior, sometimes enforcing his will in a mean manner, which is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. It is no wonder that both Emma and Lizzie were not married and still living at home in their 30s. Suitors would have been scared away by their father, and the sisters must have had issues with men being warped by their father's behavior. Unfortunately, there was no love between Abby and the girls either who strongly disliked their stepmother. Abby was stuck in a marriage of convenience for years to a pill of a man and saddled with the responsibility of raising two stepdaughters with bad attitudes who weren't her own. The daughters were raised in a rigid, overbearing atmosphere, probably transferring all their unhappiness that they had for their father onto a more likely scapegoat, Abby. What a dysfunctional family. They really needed family therapy in a time when there wasn't such a thing. To make matters worse, according to researcher... The late Arnold Brown, who wrote a book on the subject, reports that an unbalanced young man who claimed to be Andrew's illegitimate son, William, shows up late in the game and demands to be recognized as an heir. Abby was very angry and upset, so Mr. Borden changed his will, either to leave his money to Abby's family and or to leave his money to charity. Uh Uh-oh, this would leave Lizzie, Emma, and the supposed illegitimate son, William, not in line to inherit anything. Around 9 a.m., on the morning of August 4th, Abby, their maid Maggie, and Lizzie were in the home. Mr. Borden had gone to the bank. Maggie was downstairs washing the windows. Abby went up to the guest room on the second floor to sway- straighten the room, for they had a guest the night before. The late Sarah's brother, John Morse, another odd person with peculiar reactions. Some p- sometime between 9 and 10 in the guest bedroom, Abby's killer pulled the window shade and lunged at Abby, who whirled around to face her killer. "'The hatchet landed in her forehead, and she crumpled face down on the floor next to the bed. "'Her killer finishes her off by either straddling her body or sitting on her back to deliver the other 19 blows. "'Meanwhile, Maggie supposedly went up to the third floor to rest. "'Mr. Borden came home for lunch a bit earlier because he didn't feel well. "'He laid down on the couch. "'His killer slipped through the dining room and attacked him with the hatchet from behind. "'Mr. Borden didn't see it coming.' The hacking stopped after 11 blows, after the hatchet handle broke off because the blade was caught in his skull. What was thought to be the murder weapon was found downstairs in the basement. It fit perfectly into the cuts made in Andrew's skull. Years later, forensics experts were able to determine that the same hatchet blade made the rips in Abby's headscarf. The number of hatchet strikes on the bodies suggests that these murders were a crime of passion and hate pointing to a family member with built-up anger and rage, or perhaps an unbalanced person, ready to vent their emotions through murder. Most think that Lizzie did it, though some say that Lizzie and William were in cahoots and planned it out together. What a pair. Speculating, perhaps Lizzie killed her stepmother while William did in who he thought was his birth father, Andrew Borden. William didn't handle rejection well. Or another theory is that William did both murders, though most of the evidence points to Lizzie supposedly lizzie found her father dead on the couch she said that she told maggie that father is hurt and sent her to fetch the doctor and a neighbor dude he had a fucking hatchet in his skull father is dead
0: yeah (laughs) like the big dead
1: dude like a doctor ain't gonna do nothing her demeanor in front of the police was calm unemotional despite finding her father and stepmother dead big red flag to police when they asked her where's your mother she coldly replied she isn't my mother she's my stepmother she was arrested days later when her story about what happened kept changing lizzie was charged with with three first degree murder counts for her father her stepmother and another murder charge added for killing both of andrew and abby after a 10-day circus trial lizzie was found not guilty because of a lack of hard evidence tying her to the crimes and no witnesses came forward to link her the jury was not willing to send her to, death, to the death house on what was presented in court. The circumstantial evidence wasn't enough to convince this jury of 12 men that this timid, demure, obedient woman, Lizzie Borden, was capable of these vicious killings. Hindsight expressed by the Monday morning quarterbacking people in our era have come to the general consensus that the police investigation, police practices, and the prosecution dropped the ball in this infamous case in gathering evidence, questioning witnesses, and paying attention to details. Number one. Unfortunately, these killings were done in an era when sealing the crime scene wasn't done, and the killer or killers had plenty of time to dispose of bloody clothes and other key pieces of hard evidence that would tie the killers to the murder. Number two. The police, perhaps, should have stepped into the maid a little harder in interrogation. The Borden family's maid, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, was a young Irish immigrant with terrific hearing, and I bet she could hear the murders taking place as sound travels well in Victorian houses, especially small ones. One could speculate that she was paid off, not to tell what she knew. One possible scenario, perhaps she heard the sounds of Abby's vicious killing on the second floor above the first floor where she was washing windows. Sounds travel in Victorian homes. If she did, she probably ran up the stairs to see what had happened. After agreeing to keep her mouth shut for money, she retreated to her third floor bedroom until Andrew was murdered as well. She then did what the killer advised her to do, go for help. One source claims that years later... When Maggie thought she was on her deathbed, she summoned her best friend via a letter, asking her to come so that Maggie could tell her a burdening secret about the Borden murders. Maggie, it seemed, wanted to get something off her chest before she met her maker. When her friend arrived, Maggie was feeling much better and thought better of revealing a truth long kept hidden. She died without telling what she knew, perhaps damning evidence. She had to live with the guilt that she held back vital information, letting a killer slash killers escape justice, and that she could have saved Andrew's life if she had just acted. Three, they failed to follow up on clues. After receiving a rather odd letter from William that sort of confessed to the crime, the police didn't follow up and bring William in for questioning. William was probably seen as being mentally off-balanced and was just trying to help Lizzie. He hung himself about eight years after the trial, suggesting that mental illness got the better of him or perhaps a guilty conscience. After spending 10 months in jail, Lizzie was freed after the acquittal. However, she was found guilty in the court of public opinion. The townspeople of Fall River believed she was the murderer and shunned her. Lizzie and Emma received their full inheritance because the new will had mysteriously disappeared. Lizzie and her sister Emma decided to rent out their family home and move up to a more classy neighborhood, buying a mansion that they called Maplecroft. They had no trouble living with in their new wealth, instead of living a restricted life way under their financial means, finally free from her father's tyrannical presence, Lizzie, who loved the arts, started to associate it with people that her father wouldn't have tolerated. Traveling artists, performers, invited them to stay at Maplecroft and perform for her. This didn't sit well with Emma, who shared her father's view about the arts. After a huge fight with Lizzie, Emma forever broke ties with her sister and moved to New Hampshire. Lizzie continued to live at Maplecroft until she died in 1927. Despite all the relationship issues and murder, the whole family, including Sarah, Andrew's first wife, and a child that had died, were buried together in the Borden plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. In 1918, the Borden home, the place of unsolved crimes, was sold to a private family. The house was used as a private home throughout the years, living with the problem of looky-loos wanting to see the scene of the crime. Since 1948, this home has been in the McGinn family line, When the McGins inherited the Borden home from a grandmother, they decided to take advantage of people's curiosity. The McGins renovated and restored the mansion to look just like it did when the Bordens lived there. They set the antique-era furniture up exactly the way it was on that infamous day in August. In 1996, they opened it up as Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, hoping to get members of the public to pay and stay and look around. Finding a way of making a long time annoyance into a way of making a living. People were indeed ready to spend the night and learn about the murders. I'm ready.
0: Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) That is so, like, I know capitalism, but, like, honestly, smart. Right? Like, because there's no living in a house like that after. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It's just like the conjuring house and stuff like you just can't mm-hmm. you just can't live there because people are going to harass you and like the Amityville house too, mm-hmm. you just can't like you're constant. I would constantly be scared somebody was going to break in mm-hmm. take a picture just dist- you can't go outside like so mm-hmm. what else do you do you capitalize off it
1: <laughs> exactly you know. So, some of the ghosts that are still there, we have the entity of Mr. Andrew Borden, still seething that his life was brutally taken from him, finding some comfort that the living are bringing things to light. He enjoys watching the activity in the home and has started to answer AVP questions. He goes about his business, what he used to do while alive. The entity of Mrs. Abby Borden, in the guest bedroom, now called the John Morse Room, and ind- an indentation of a body on the room's bed was discovered by a staff member. Like someone had just laid on top of it. One month after renovations and refurnishing the home was complete. Poignant cries are heard in here as well. An older woman with gray hair has been seen happily puttering around the room, busy with her affairs. If she couldn't enjoy her life here while alive, now she can in the afterlife. The entity of Lizzie Borden, an apparition of a woman that looks like Lizzie, has been seen down in the basement, looking around the basement, perhaps, perhaps fervently being sure that she disposed of all evidence. The entity of Maggie's cat a disembodied cat's meow is heard. This cat is still friendly and rubs up against people it likes in the second and third floor bedrooms. Yeah, so it didn't mention in the history that I just said, but about a week or two before the murders of Abby and Andrew, Maggie, the maid's cat, was beheaded down in the basement. Hmm.
0: The cat's still around. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. nice the entity of bridget maggie sullivan she is still trying to say what happened the truth an evp recording captured said ma'am come quick did she find the body of abby andrew or both cold spots are reported in maggie's room an apparition of a woman dressed in maid's clothes is seen doing her chores around the house and this last one is going to lead me into the second section of lizzie borden house and there are entities of two children They have been seen living in various parts of the house and have been heard playing marbles.
0: Mm, Well, at least they're having fun.
1: Yeah. So, this was interesting to me because I have family in Massachusetts, so I know a little bit more and have heard a, a little bit more about the Lizzie Borden house. I didn't realize that there were actually murders before in the same house by the same family with a woman who was named eliza and the name creeps me out more the fact that lizzie and eliza are so close freaks me out Mm -hmm. so now we're going to talk about children down the well the story starts with lizzie's great uncle lodwick and has long been a lesser known footnote to the saga of the lizzie borden axe murderers of 1892 Lodwick Borden was the son of Martha Petty Borden and Richard Borden. Lodwick lived a normal life, as normal as could be for the late 1800s. He was a ladies' man and enjoyed the company of four wives throughout his lifetime. Not too unusual, as women died in childbirth quite often back in those times. His second wife, Eliza Darling Borden, has genuinely piqued the interest of the paranormal community and the excitement of all who hear of her. Looking back on their unthinkable acts, it is clear that Eliza suffered greatly from postpartum depression, a condition not familiar to women of the 1800s. Mental health was mainly ignored and swept under the rug during those times, for it was considered shameful to have any mental issues or disabilities. Eliza had three children with Lodwick in very rapid succession, Holder, Eliza Ann, and Maria. With details clouded by time, all that is known is that she killed two of her three children, sparing Maria, and took her own life soon after it is said that she brutally murdered two of her children by tossing them down the property's cellar cistern and afterward went upstairs in the small Cape Cod-style home slicing her own throat with Lodwick's straight razor. Uh huh. Other versions claim that she committed suicide behind the cellar chimney, unable to make it up to the stairs, her grief so intense. Even worse, in order to finish the deed, Eliza would have had to spend a reasonable amount of time drowning the children in the cistern, or even just throwing them in, their tiny bodies unable to escape, and soon drowning after exhaustion set in. It's even thought that Eliza's husband, Laudwick committed suicide shortly after the ordeal, unable to deal with what his wife had done and the loss of his children. This left Maria to deal with the world on her own, and one can only hope that she did not grow up knowing of the horrors her mother had done. Lesser Known Entities Paranormal investigators who visit the Lizzie Borden home today make extreme attempts to contact the spirits of the murdered children who died so many years before Abby and Andrew Borden. Their tragic demise is caused by a hatchet in August of 1892. Guests of the now Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast leave small toys for the ghost children in the guest rooms and claim that they hear children's laughter and sounds of play on the second and third floors of the B&B. Tragedy runs rampant in the Borden family, and it has endured for so long due to Lizzie Borden's acts and her trial in 1893. Lizzie herself was carefully examined to determine if she were mentally competent and able to stand trial to be held accountable for the crime she had committed. Questions were asked about her sanity and the mental state of the Borden family in general. Of course, the prosecution brought up the topic of Eliza Borden and her unfortunate children and was introduced as a possible source of inherited madness. The defense quickly shot down this claim, as Eliza was only a Borden through marriage. Her bloodline not coexisting with the borden clan mentions were also made of made that one surviving child maria borden was alive and flourishing in the city with her children another strange fact maria borden's husband samuel hinkey was a boarder at the borden house in 1850 when maria was just a young girl of five samuel was 18 at the time the two wed on october 3rd of 1866 an age difference of such intensity was expected back in those times but it's bizarre that he unknowingly became a part of the house's tragic history, not knowing what would occur there. Mm. I think the fact that it's two deaths, both caused by a Lizzie Eliza, that creeps me out. That makes me think of like a family curse or something. Uh yeah, yeah.
0: There's some bad shit there. Maybe it's a portal yeah. to hell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. You never know. I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I know that they have – there have been documentaries to make connections with Lizzie Borden and, like, Satan worship or curses and stuff like that. And I was just like, ah, whatever. They're just – they're so excited about Lizzie Borden and it's just a cool idea. I didn't realize that there was – about the murder before then. That brings another level to it.
0: Yeah. Like, I'm surprised there's been nothing after, but
1: – Yeah. They agreed. got what it needed. <laughs> right.
0: So I have two more, and then I think that wraps it up. So this next one is The Haunting of Rhodes Hall in Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia is caught between traditionalism of its architecture and progressiveness of its present. The infamously haunted Rhodes Hall prevails as a testament to the different kinds of legacy. Built in 1904 by staunch supporters of the South, Rhodes Hall is a stunning architectural marvel that serves as a reminder of the city's dark past. The house itself has remained largely untouched by time and every piece of furniture and decor remains intact, which is so cool. Like Yes. Fuck these people, and I'll get into why in a minute. But also, the fact that it still stands as it did is pretty cool. But it does have some really shitty stuff in it. Mm.
1: Scariest
0: of all, the original owners are still there. (laughs) (laughs) When designing the blueprints for where he and his wife were to spend their lives, Millionaire Furniture tycoon ammo styles Rhodes spared no expense Rhodes ordered his new abode to be carved with granite harvested from stone mountain in an equally ominous romanesque revival style to top it off Rhodes also outfitted the home with 300 light bulbs giving it the appearance of a glittering fortress made of stars rich people am i right <laughs> The home is formidable with sweeping stone archways, immaculate landscaping, a windowed turret that looks as though it was plucked straight from the Middle Ages. Amos and his wife Amanda moved into the estate in 1904 and quickly began filling it with rare and expensive furniture. The interior is lavishly decorated, featuring ornately carved throne-like chairs, golden chandeliers, massive four-poster beds, and a fleet of stone angels keeping watch. Worst, yeah. Worst of all, the roads installed a sprawling stained glass mural depicting the rise of the Confederacy.
1: Mm, of course
0: they did. The, it gets, the mural stretches across three panels and features a portrait of Nathan Bedford Forrest, former Grand Wizard of the KKK. Amos and his wife were beyond thrilled with their new home and referred to it only as the dream. In 1927, Amanda passed away inside the house and was shortly joined by her husband in 1928. Following their parents' passing, the Rose children deeded the home to the state of Georgia. From 1984 to 1992, a haunted house attraction held inside the mansion drew thousands of visitors. Little did they know their experiences may very well have been real. Looking at it today, the massive Peachtree Street estate looks out of place, backed by high-rise office buildings and the blur of hundreds of cars speeding by. But thanks to the Georgia Trust, a historic association dedicated to preserving its architectural history, Rhodes Hall isn't going anywhere. Now it is a preserved historic site. The mansion houses guided tours and holds weddings and other events. But there are still spirits of the original owners. Amos and his wife were apparently so enamored with their towering fortress like home. They decided there was no real reason to leave. Rumor has it that the spirits of the old couple still lurk through the creaky old corridors of the hall to this day. Over the years, hundreds of visitors, wedding parties and tour guides have entered through the massive front doors and immediately left. (laughs) Although undoubtedly a beautiful historical landmark and definitely worth going to Rhodes Hall is not for those that are faint of heart. In life, Amos and the, his wife mostly kept to themselves, growing old inside their glittering shrine to the south as the world slowly passed them by. One thing was for sure, the couple liked to be left alone. If this was true in life, it seemed to ring even truer in death, as the Rhodes evidently do not appreciate visitors. Across the board, most guests and tour guides of Rhodes Hall report feeling overwhelmingly hostile presences permeating the air as soon as they enter, as if whoever lurks there wants them out and wants them out fast. One tour guide who worked at Rhodes Hall only briefly before quitting reports an especially terrifying moment. The guide was at the hall late one night, having just finished up an evening behind-the-scenes tour. She was tired from a long day at work, and she wanted nothing more than to go home. The guide had just finished gathering up her belongings and was about to descend to the staircase when she heard someone creeping up the stairs towards her. She froze, her heart caught in her throat. No one else was supposed to be in this part of the building but her, and she had just watched the last of her coworkers leave. The footsteps were slow and heavy, and there was a third noise like the tapping of a cane. As the footsteps grew closer, a deep male voice began to growl, Get out! Get out! Jesus. The guide hoped and prayed it was just her coworkers playing a cruel joke on her. She called out to them, but there was no answer. Suddenly, the shadow of an old man, bent man, appeared of an old bent man appeared along the dimly lit walls, his wild hair sticking up in all directions, his cane stretched out in front of him. The deep male voice grew louder and louder until it was screaming, Get out, get out. Not wanting to stick around, the tour guide turned and fled down the main staircase out the front door, not even bothering to lock up behind her. She quit the next day over the phone and never went back. I can bet. Another person reports an equally eerie run in with the wife. A young woman was enjoying a pleasant visit to Atlanta with her family when her paranormal-obsessed sister suggested they take a tour of Amos Hall. It took some convincing as the woman was terrified of all things spooky, but she gave in to her sister and they took the tour. The family bought tickets for an all-inclusive tour and set off the next morning to see the infamous Amos Hall. The minute the young woman entered, she felt a chill creep up her spine. She reports feeling the unsettling sensation that she was not welcome and even more disturbing that she was being watched. Grabbing for her sister's hand, she tried to explain to her that she was having second thoughts about the tour. Her sister simply squeezed her hand harder and pulled her in. The family followed the tour guide through the lavishly decorated halls, stopping to admire the paintings and antique furniture. But the young woman was too nervous to appreciate any of it. She paused for a moment to study a portrait of Mrs. Rhodes. The woman in the picture was old, gray, with steely hair and unsmiling eyes. Looking at her sent a shiver up the young woman's spine. By the time the woman had turned away from the portrait, her family and the rest of the tour were gone, and she was all alone with Mrs. Rhodes. Jesus. Terrified, the woman turned to rush out of the room, but a strange sound stopped her in her tracks. Every piece of furniture in the room began to rattle and shake, and the lights overhead flickered on and off. All the hairs on the back of her neck stood straight up, and suddenly the frail face of old Mrs. Rhodes appeared in an antique mirror, her ghostly figure superimposed over the woman's own image. The young woman screamed and ran out of the room just as portraits and paintings began to fly off the walls. Luckily, her family was not charged with any damages. Over the years, the hall's haunted reputation has attracted plenty of attention and has even been featured on investigative paranormal shows such as Ghost Hunters. The Ghost Hunters, as well as other paranormal experts, have recorded inexplicable EVPs, children's laughter lights turning off and on by themselves doors slamming and locking but based on what we know about them perhaps it would be best to simply leave Rhodes hall alone
1: i can't imagine being like a black person walking in there do you just like i why... think you just are those the people that just leave right you away? go in
0: there and you flip them off and you're like <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. I, I mean i know that it's historical and but like these people were like yeah again like Fuck no. these people, you know?
1: No, like, I... Once again, Amanda's making me more and more liberal by the second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I was looking at pictures while you were talking of, like, weddings and stuff there, and it was all fucking white people, and it was just making me so mad, thinking of, like, you know, weddings at plantations and stuff. That is so fucked up. So fucked up. We should not allow this to this yeah, be like, happening. Yeah, I,
0: mm-hmm. like, I understand preserving history, because we don't want to repeat history, and we want to respect mm-hmm. it, but... I would never have a plantation wedding, but I would like tour a plantation the same way I would tour like a fucking Holocaust museum. You know, right?
1: Exactly. But having a fucking wedding there, having a wedding and having those pictures of the fucking Nathan Bedford Forrest in your background—gross—makes me want to gag.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wow. The last one I have is the murder house, but not the American. Horror Story Murder House. (laughs) It is actually, this one is in Idaho. It's also known as the Chop Chop House. The Chop Um, Chop House. Chop 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 Chop. Yeah. There's a reason for that.
1: No, I'm sure. Yeah. Yep, yep.
0: In Boise, Idaho, there is a house referred to as the Murder House. Some even refer to this place as Chop Chop House in reference to the terrible things that went down here so many years ago. The house is still standing today, and walking by it, you might not realize anything out of the ordinary happened, except for that it hasn't aged well. However, once you hear about the crime that took place here, you'll never look at the house the same way again. On June 30th, 1987, 805 West Linden Street was the scene of a terrible murder. The crime may be over 30 years old, but that doesn't make it any less harrowing. The story goes that three men got into a fight on that summer night. One of the men, Preston Murr, was shot in the shoulder as a result. He attempted to run away from the other two men. Murr ran up to a neighbor's house and banged on the door. The neighbor did not come out, but he did call the police. Unfortunately, the police didn't show up until way later, after it was too late. The fuck are you good for then? Sorry. Right. Don't call the like They're not going to help you the next morning the neighbor had to call the police for a second time when the police showed up they discovered trails of blood on the street and blood smeared across the neighbor's door the blood gave police reason to obtain a search warrant and enter the house where the neighbor heard altercation coming from once inside the police discovered a horrid crime scene of Murr's murder the two men had dragged Murr back after he escaped and fatally shot him then in an act of excessive brutality they dismembered the body in order to dispose of it the men drove out to brownlee reservoir near the oregon and idaho border to dispose of the body the body wasn't recovered in the reservoir until a week later however the two men darren cox and daniel rogers were immediately apprehended and charged with murder to this day it is unclear why the confrontation between the three men even broke out The details are murky about why Murr was gruesomely murdered, and according to court documents, the three men had been hanging out earlier that evening trying to locate Rogers' recently stolen guns. They drove around Boise trying to find the apartment of the person they believed that had stolen the guns. The trio returned to the house on Linden Street around midnight, and that is when the deadly altercation broke out. Cox was given a lesser sentence because he complied with the police and gave details about the murder. Overall, he spent just six years in prison before being released. The jury deemed Rogers guilty of first degree murder and he was sentenced to life behind bars. He is currently serving his life term at Idaho Correctional Center and was last denied parole back in 05. Over the years, numerous people have lived in the murder house. Several people rented it out during the 90s and the house even spent some time as a Boise State University frat house in the 2000s. Although there haven't been any official paranormal instances that have occurred in the house, most people do agree that there is something extremely unsettling about the house, specifically the basement. Driving by the house today, you can't help but take a peek at the windows just to see if there's anything looking back at you. So this didn't say there weren't any paranormal instances in the house. But I read the story because the most haunted house in the state, but you don't have any paranormal instances. Okay, that's weird. Uh-huh. So I did a little more looking into this house and it was really hard to find like, cause this house has maintained it's red. Like nobody has donated this house. It's not mm-hmm. a bed and breakfast. It is still a residential home. So it's not like you can go in there and investigate or ghost adventurous has ever been there or something like that. So I could see where that would be a little harder. But what I did find was an interview with a mom and daughter that lived in the house. And the mom said that she never experienced anything different, but the daughter said that she could not go down into the basement. She would not go down into the basement. And every time that she needed to go down to the basement or even look down into the basement, she got this overwhelming feeling that she just needed to turn on the lights and run up the stairs. You know, that
1: feeling Mm -hmm.
0: that you're just not safe and you're being watched and Mm -hmm. you're just like something horrible happened here they dismembered this guy and his body was found in 13 pieces
1: god damn
0: and you just live in that. And it, Yeah,
1: no, 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 no.
0: Even if nothing paranormal, like, you, how do you just go down into that basement and feel, like, okay, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely not.
0: So she should have said she was incredibly uncomfortable and scared. And she just felt like she couldn't be safe down there and that she always had to, like, if she had to go down there for something. It was like, you know, when you're a kid and you're kind of scared of the dark and you have to go mm-hmm. somewhere at night and you turn off the light and you just, like, run away really yeah. fast. That's how she felt, but she was like 16, 17 years old. Damn. Yeah. So that's like a, that's the murder house in Boise.
1: Ooh, fuck that. No. Mm-mm.
0: Yeah. And it was a fairly recent crime, especially compared to everything else we're talking about. Yeah, like definitely. These old South homes that were built in the 1800s or even one from the 1700s and things like that. The one in Mississippi was built, you know, before John Adams took the office. So this one was very recent. So give it a give it like another 30 years.
1: <laughs> right.
0: You know, and it'll ramp up. But he's still the baby ghost.
1: No, 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 no. Yeah. No.
0: Yeah. If you have any hauntings, like if you lived in a haunted house or if your town has one or if your state has one that we didn't talk about, we'd love to hear it. Send it in. Our email is theextrasisters at gmail.com and you can find us on all of our socials at the Extra Sisters podcast or at Twitter. It is just at the Extra Sisters. Or if you would like more direct content or more direct access, extra content, fun little things for your birthday, things like that, you know, you can go to patreon.com slash the podcast and hit us up there and join our little Patreon family.
1: Until next time, stay creepy.